My PhD research is um, about the development of expertise, something that actually matters a great deal to the uh, film special effects and uh, game special effects industry, which is where I come from. I was, as David was alluding, a uh, art director and a CG supervisor before I uh, became an educator. And um, the reason I became an educator primarily was because it was so difficult to find qualified people emerging from existing CG um, uh, programs. So I wanted to see if, if that was a matter of all students being bad or a number of schools just not knowing exactly what they should be teaching. Uh, so I got into this and uh, decided to do a PhD study on how expertise is developed. Um, because the thing is, is it seemed to me that uh, we were producing a number of experts who were going on into industry and having successful careers, which is rather nice. So obviously expertise is being developed somehow, so let's see how it's done. And while I was researching it, I discovered that I had a couple of uh, key ideas that became very important, and that's uh, threshold concepts and problem solving. It seemed that if students went ahead and acquired these th threshold concepts that were important to the discipline, they became enabled to solve problems, and they became experts as a result of that. That's just how it worked. Now, the minimum goal for students and industry, in this particular field anyway, is that you need to be professionally competent. Okay, there are, there are some disciplines where maybe it doesn't really matter or maybe it's very difficult to define what professionally competent actually means because there's a wide variety of things it could mean. For instance, one of my careers was as a gallery artist uh, and the range of things you can do from making unusual machinery that mimics human vocalizations to uh, anatomical or anatomically inspired drawings uh, to landscapes. It can be just about anything um, and definitions of professional competence actually are almost meaningless in that context. But for making films, and, and I, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in the sense that how are you supposed to define the difference between these things. Um, but when it comes to uh, making video games or making films, you can define it. You can say, is the spaceship uh, made out of believable measurements, for instance? Okay, how is the, is the, uh, the lighting um, being rendered on your metallic surfaces versus your liquid surfaces, is it correct? You can, you can measure these things. So you can decide or determine what professional, competent, uh, professional competence actually is. Okay, so it's a minimum goal for students because if they're not professionally competent, they don't get work. They are going to be competing with almost nothing but other professionals. So therefore, they have to be actually quite good. They'll already, at the, at the time of entry, have to be professionally competent. They can't be anything less. Industry, obviously, is not going to waste money who aren't, so why bother with anyone who isn't? So they don't. In fact, when I was a hiring manager, I had a rule, and I gave this rule to every um, recruiter who was working with me. I said, don't send me any resumes or any demo reels from anyone who just graduated from college. I know already none of them are qualified. Only give me people who have between three and five years worth of work experience as a starting point. Um, I have relaxed that standard since, but I'm no longer working at these companies, so it doesn't matter. Um, so, to do this, you're going to have to assess the students against professional standards, not academic standards. Now, if these are the same, it wouldn't really matter. Now, in certain um, fields, they pretty much are the same. So, if you're wanting to be a medical doctor, or you want to be a lawyer, you want to be an electrical engineer, there are professional organizations that monitor and certify the work that's done at universities that specialize in these fields. So, for instance, if you want to be a medical doctor and you go to Harvard Medical School, um, that degree is something that is respected by professionals in that industry, professionals who contribute to the American Medical Association, for instance, who regulates it. Now, in the world of computer graphics, there's no such body. 
uh, and the field is largely unregulated, which creates a couple of problems. Uh, and they are actually pretty serious problems because on the one hand, industry has a, um, a real need, almost a thirst, for people who are equipped to do this work and as a result of not finding very many qualified candidates, most people in industry are relatively overworked. Uh, and as far as students are concerned, they're wasting a lot of time not learning what they should be learning and spending money doing that and not really getting what they're paying for. So that's, that's a problem. So you need to have an alignment of professional and academic standards, which can be actually difficult to do for academies if they don't know what the professional standards are or they don't know how to implement them. Uh, now, my experience is that in this field, higher education does a fairly poor job. This isn't just my impression, of course. There are a number of articles written on this very subject where people in industry um, have a habit of complaining about schools that teach this particular subject. In my experience, there's probably about four to five universities I semi-trust to, to do a decent job, and that's out of hundreds. And the programs are rapidly proliferating because students are rather attracted to this field because at 17 and 18 years of age, they think it'd be kind of neat to work in Hollywood or make video games. They seem to equate playing them or watching them with making them, which is kind of like equating riding on a passenger jet with making a passenger jet. Um, the, the, the difference of the magnitude of, uh, uh, um, of uh, misapprehension there is, I would say, roughly equivalent. So let me give you an example of something made by some students at my program where we do actually regularly achieve um, the creation of expert levels of skill. Uh, this is a work in progress by some students, as you can tell by the label there. This is fairly short. I intend to talk over it to make it more fascinating. Um, so what you're seeing here is a 3D model of a human character. You're seeing lighting. You're seeing... Actually, what you're, what you're not seeing is what this is. These are collections of vertices, polygons, and they have material attributes assigned to them. You know, this, this vertex represents a piece of plastic. This edge... Oh, you can't. Okay. Yeah, how do I turn the music off? Arrows at the top. Arrows at the top of the keyboard. Oh, this guy's my best friend right now. Anyway, so the thing is, is that you have all these, these, like, these points, these vertices, these edges, these lines that define the structure of these things. And then each of these uh, are defined by polygons that have directions. And those directions are compared to the direction of light sources. And then a, a result is, of illumination is calculated based on colors that are attributed to the uh, these uh, materials and the materials have other characteristics as well that affect how they return colors to a two-dimensional rendering and then of course movement such as with the eyes here is also controlled um, digitally using you know various tools that, that our students work with but the point of showing you this is that this is actually professional quality work this is something that should be relatively difficult to distinguish from something you'd see in a film and it's made by students who aren't good enough yet to graduate from our program, okay? This is, although I should say, they're all very good students. Um, but we have quite a few students like this, which is rather nice. Um, but one of the things that we do that allows them to get here, at least this is, this is what I'm seeing, is that we inform them what a professional standard is from the day they start. We don't figure that um, professional standards are difficult. We don't determine in advance this is something that you can work your way up to uh, dealing with. We look at professional standards as something more akin to a light switch. If you point it out, you can find it pretty easily. If you say if you push it this direction, the lights go on, not very many people would have a hard time doing that. 
and professional standards are kind of like that. They're actually designed to be easy to use. Professionals do their work more efficiently and quicker than non-professionals because they have developed workflows that accomplish that particular goal, which means that if you're informed of these practices, it actually makes it easier to do your work, not harder. Okay? So at this philosophy, as a starting point, we insist on professional work from the beginning. Uh, so uh, we use problem-based learning. Now, by the way, in this talk, I, this is an education type of conference. I want to talk a little bit of learning theory, but I also want to talk about uh, how we do things at the school because it, it is related to the research. Okay? So we do use problem-based learning. Um, and the reason is because we feel that if a student is given an interesting problem to solve, they will find more information on their own than we could possibly deliver to them and they will most likely forget because it's not situated appropriately in the context of a goal that they are actually interested in solving. Um, my daughter, for instance, is fantastic at finding every nook and cranny of every video game she's ever played because she thinks it's interesting to do it. Now, if I say to a student, wouldn't you like to make a science fiction effects shot? And they say yes, and I say, well, don't you think of something that you like, that you find interesting to do, like, I don't know, stranded uh, astronauts in space. This was done before the movie Gravity came out, by the way. Um, then they can actually, on their own, seek and find solutions to their problems. And then what happens is the teachers become, uh, fill more of a support role um, and a, a little bit of direction, but they don't have to provide absolutely everything, which lightens the load on the teacher um, in one way, and it allows them to spend their time more effectively in another, because instead of having to provide every piece of information, they're directing them and letting the student go off on their own a bit, kind of like creating robots in order to search the, the web to find things for you. Um, so that's problem-based. I found I, I can read this more easily than this, because I don't have my glasses. Um, so I'm going to look over here instead. Okay, now we don't give them much time, which puts a time pressure on them. So for instance, our first project, which we'll see in a minute, um, they get one week and it's going to be built to professional standard or it's going to fail. Um, that's literally the, the, the criteria for passing. It can't have a single mistake of any kind. Um, if it does, it fails. Now the thing is, is that normally students, when they start at the school, they're 17, 18 years old, and they've never been confronted with the realistic proposal of failure before. Um, projects for them, up until that point, have been designed so that they can pass them. This project is designed specifically to make them fail. We do that on purpose. We want them to know what it's like to fail. We don't care if 80% of them fail it. In fact, actually, it's between 72 and 78% of them fail it every year. That's fine. We make it as a bonus project, so it doesn't hurt them in their final grade, but it can help them a lot if they pass, okay? But we want them to know what it's like so that they stay on their toes, so that they pay attention after this, and it tends to have that effect, which is rather nice. So what happens with our lectures and textbooks is they're there just as background information. That's kind of like the library, but the real work is being done by pursuing these goals. Now, within our projects, we like to embed threshold concepts into them. They are inferred or implied, and they tend to be accomplished as a part of the process of solving uh, the problem they, that they've been given. Our problems are always open-ended because we want our students to be able to reach, uh, well, essentially for an endless ceiling, something that, that they can always make the project more complicated if they care to. If they're timid, then they can go for something that's easier, and that's perfectly fine. They can still learn the concepts. Uh, and we always give them a clearly described goal. You are going to make this, but you're going to define what that is. Uh, so let's give you an example. So the first project, all they have to do is make a folding carton based on specific um, uh, 
limitations that we give them. Okay? It's fairly simple. And one of the, the, the interesting things about this project, it, it is so simple that when you look at it, you have to think, how on earth can anyone fail this project? Um, but when you get into it, you will find there are a lot of ways to fail it. If um, any vertex on this object goes outside of these black borders, it fails. If this is not exactly 10 units in its longest dimension, it fails. If it's not named properly, it fails. If the textures are skewed in any way, it fails. There's a lot of different ways that this thing can fail. And when you consider that this is the first time they've ever done anything in 3D, you begin to appreciate the, uh, the difficulty of this. But the fun thing is that whether they pass or fail the project, everyone becomes comfortable with the interface by doing it because they are so frustrated while trying to pass the project that they do it over and over and over again. They will do this and redo this dozens and dozens of times. What I really like to do is to make problems that have goals that appear attainable. They are much farther away than they seem to be. Just like if you're living... Yeah, well, thank you. When I was in Phoenix, Arizona, it was kind of like that. It was a very flat country, and you'd look out over a hill. You know, there's like one hill, and then it's all flat. And you'd look to town, and you'd be like, well, that looks very close. And you'd get in your car, and it'd be an hour later, you'd get there. Um, and that's kind of what these projects were like. It looks so easy that they can taste victory, and so they keep on working on it until they, uh, at the very least, learn how to use the uh, program. Now, the thing I like about this is that there are other schools that teach applications as opposed to goals or problems, and they will spend an entire year teaching what, what they learn in one week on this project. Okay, And the reason is because when you're saying, here's a button, and this is what it does, and here's another button, here's what that one does, it doesn't really have much meaning to the student. When you say, make this, that's easy, isn't it? And then they go bananas trying to figure it out. They figure out where all the buttons are located, okay? And it makes it stick, okay? So um, it also tells them what the difference is between the professional and academic standard. Professional standard is, it doesn't have any mistakes. And the reason for that is because if it does, it can take another professional three or four days to find out where the mistake is and then fix it. Now, realistically speaking, we don't tell them this. Professionals make mistakes all the time. Um, but we want them to be a new breed and meet a higher standard. So we, we inform them only when they're older. Um, all right. So here's the, uh, the second project. Now, the threshold concept in that first one is this is what a professional standard is. It's completely new to them. It's alien to their experience. And it changes the way they look at everything after they've done it. So the Illusion Project... Ever since the uh, M.C. Escher Foundation, which I found out is located in the Netherlands, and they you know, like to publicize Escher all over the place, and they find out we're doing an Escher project, and we're not allowed to because we didn't ask permission. So now we make our own drawings, which is actually more fun anyway. So we can say, well, look at this. Our drawings are just as good. Anyway, so we make these drawings, and we have the students build a illusion. Okay? And this is you know, starting with one week plus a day. right? This is their second project. They have to make these very complicated things. This is a finished result by a student, uh, all rendered. And I think you can see the illusion. This is impossible, right? Okay. Uh, and I've shown here an idea of how the solution is worked out. The, the students have to draw these so that they, they work out the solutions on paper. Um, this has a threshold concept embedded in it. And it is that the camera actually governs how this thing is built. Students hate to start with cameras. They love to start with objects. I'm making this interesting illusion, I'm going to build it, and then afterwards I'll throw on the camera and take a picture of it. But it doesn't work like that because the camera affects whether the object is skewed or not. Okay? If you have the wrong camera, to get the result we saw in the previous slide, 
the student would act, literally have to um, skew these so that right angles aren't right angles anymore, and that's not allowed. So the only way to do that is if you set up your cameras first, which, again, it's something that students hate to do, but in, in computer graph, it's, it's an extremely important concept to appreciate because the camera rules. The camera, if, if it's not seen on camera, you don't build it. If it is seen on camera and it looks wrong, you adjust it. The camera governs everything. So they get over this at the same time as they have to solve a difficult spatial problem because they have to understand the relationship of these objects. So they look unified here, but if you see the camera and its direction, you can see I've got two separate objects that aren't actually connected, but they're aligned with the camera so that they appear as if they are actually connected. So if we look in this, this drawing here, we see that the, uh, the green rectangular prism here is actually not connected to the orange one, even though it appears to be. And I can't, they couldn't be drawn in the same slide because they're actually not connected. Um, but this actually extends far beyond this box in the uh, Z depth. And this goes down. Uh, this looks very complicated. I can give you a copy of my book on the subject. In any event, um, the point is it's a complicated visual uh, problem, and they solve this, and students actually tend to do fairly well with that. Now, um, the third class, and this is the one that my study really concerns, has to do with working with something called NURBS. Now, in computer graphics, the, the expression or the term NURBS is an acronym, but nobody uses it as an acronym. It stands for Non-Uniform Rational Bezier Splines, which most people don't like to say. Um, so we just call it NURBS, and we use it as a word, okay? So you can think of it as that thing the guy's talking about. You don't need to know anything more about it, okay? All it is, is um, it's a way of representing structure, okay? So um, with the other objects I was showing you, they're represented with something called polygons, which is vertices that are connected by edges, which create filled faces when you have three or more vertices, and then light gets reflected off of them, which means if you want to make a circle, it's a number of straight line segments, okay? So the more you have, the smoother it looks. But with NURBS, everything is made with mathematically defined curves. So you can say, here's a center point, and you've got a radius, and then it will smoothly draw a curve no matter how close or far away from the screen you are. And then if you have curves and you say this is connected to that one by straight edges on either boundary, then you have a surface, and it's defined by curves also. So the thing about NURBS is that this is what's used to design cars and coffee cups and computers and everything else you see these days because these are accurate to a manufacturing standard. Polygons are not. Um, now, the thing about these is that we have three threshold concepts that are very important when you're working with NURBS. One is relationships. And the reason is because what you have here in this vehicle, this is a photograph of a Mini Cooper, um, is you have what's called blended shapes. So you have a structure, the headlight here, another structure, the bonnet, and these are blended together with shapes so that they appear to smoothly flow into each other, which gives the appearance of a single surface. But there's a topological limitation of working with NURBS, and that is everything has to be four-sided. These things aren't four-sided. So how do you make that? You have to make a lot of smaller four-sided blended shapes that blend into what appears to be a smooth shape. So you have to understand relationships in order to understand how to make them blend together smoothly. Order of construction becomes important because if you cut piece A against piece B, you might not get shape C. You might get shape D. But if you cut A and C together, you might get the shape you want. Do you see what I'm saying? So give you an example. If you take two squares and you have one bow outward and one bow inward and you intersect them, you'll get a circle in the middle. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, they have a hard time understanding how shapes relate to each other and how you can create intersections in order to get tertiary shapes that don't resemble the original shapes. All right? So you have intersection, order of construction, 
and relationships. These are the three threshold concepts involved. Now, to visualize this, uh, let's take a look at this object here. Okay? To make this object, you start with these curves. These curves don't look anything at all like this. None of these curves are reflected in this shape. Now, what you do is you take these curves and you make them into these shapes. These shapes don't resemble this either. But when you cut these out of each other along these dotted lines, then you get half of this shape, and then you reflect it and you get the other half. Do you see what I'm saying? So what we're doing with the students is we're saying for their third project, we're not being too easy on them, uh, we're saying this is what you want, and this is all the reference you get, figure this stuff out. Okay? So it's a visualization problem. Um, and actually, the, uh, kind of an interesting is, thing is when you look at literature on spatial visualization, problem solving, and expertise, these things tend to be discussed all as separate things. In this case, the expertise and the problem and the visualization are all exactly the same thing. Okay, the problem is how do you visualize this? If you visualize it, it's solved and you're an expert. You see what I'm saying? So, um, okay. Uh, so, just to give you a, a slightly better example of what this really looks like, this car is made out of these surfaces. Literally these surfaces. So students have to see these before they can make this, or they don't get it. Um, so we have another problem, and that is that there are multiple correct solutions. So here's a section of bonnet from the Mini Cooper I showed you. These are all three different patterns of patch layouts. Probably hard to see from the back, but I have these dotted lines that show completely different patterns on each one of these. They're all equally correct, and none of them are visible on the reference material. So they have to invent this. What this also means is that the teachers don't know the solutions for the student's project either because the students are allowed to choose their own automobile. We don't have predefined solutions. <coughs> the students have to come up with this on their own. Um, now, the thing is, is that to do it requires mental engagement. I can tell students all about this stuff just as I'm explaining it to you. And I think most of you, if not all of you, probably understand what I'm saying. You understand the nature of the problem. You have an idea why it's difficult. And you can probably picture in your own mind what it would be like to solve this problem. Most students understand this concept pretty easily. But doing it is a completely different thing altogether. They need to develop the ability to see things in a completely different way in order to accomplish this. And once they're able to do that, it meaningfully affects the way they do work from then on. Not only in this class, but in many other subjects as well. Uh, one of the better things about this is that once they've succeeded at this, they get a tremendous amount of self-confidence that makes them more willing to attempt other difficult problems, which is one of the main points of this project. Just like the main point, of, or one of the main uh, uh, components of the Carton project is, let's see how they react to failure. This one, let's see what happens uh, when they have a, a tough problem and they actually solve it. Okay, so. The work, um, now I like what my students do, and I love to tell people, yes, they're all experts and they're wonderful at this, but I like to have independent validation. So for my, my study, I got uh, five experts in the field. Uh, one guy is co-owner of a uh, company that uh, hires over 100 uh, computer modelers. Uh, another is uh, uh, the supervisor of a team that did a whole bunch of cars for the Need for Speed game and so on. All these people do this kind of stuff in the industry. And um, they validated all of the work I showed them as meeting their standards professionally. Every car, every student that they saw, um, it's professional. So I'm not mistaken about that. Um, now the thing is, to get there, the students can't just follow instructions. 
they have to be able to invent a path to a solution. And they can't invent it unless they're thinking, unless they're engaged creatively. Um, so the problem that the students get is at an industry difficulty level. We're not saying to you guys, oh, you're just a bunch of little young people. Um, we can't really trust you with a real world problem. This real world problem happens to be so challenging that many professionals don't like to, to learn how to do this. So when you find people who actually know how to solve this particular problem, it's unusual and generally is worth uh, a little extra salary. Okay? And yet, these students with no experience do just fine. Why is that? Because we trust them to do just fine. We give them the problem without holding back any information in the expectation that they can't handle it. Uh, so we trust them to succeed. They're given the raw materials they need, but they're also given the responsibility that they must have in order to own this work. Okay? Um, so the way I look at this is kind of what I'm calling the expertise network model. You have information as symbolized by these numbers and equation symbols, uh, and that populates a, a problem space, a landscape of, of knowledge that's related to a domain or a problem. Uh, and then you have these arrows that connect them. So you need to have certain requisite knowledge in order to solve problems, but you also need it to be connected in the right way. So in this case, 1, 2 plus 3 equals means nothing. That's not connected properly here. 1 plus 2 equals 3. It does mean something. The knowledge on its own isn't enough. It has to be connected, and it has to be connected correctly. Um, and the other thing is, expertise does not mean that you need to know all the knowledge in a problem space. You need to know the key knowledge that allows you access to those things that you are actually doing. Okay? So that's conceived in this way, in this node network, with a bunch of stars and circles, where the stars represent the key information, and the definition of expertise for the sake of this explanation is that any two stars are connected. And if you look at it, this has expertise, and this one does, even though there are many fewer nodes here than here. And this section, the yellow section, has more nodes than anything, and no expertise because of the lack of connections. Do you see what I'm saying here? Okay. Um, so what it really becomes a matter of is searching out those threshold concepts that allow the exp expertise to develop. Okay. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead because I want to make sure I say this because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, is that when working with these students, I be, how shall I say this? We know they became experts because of the validation from industry. When I look at what they did in the class, and they all had zero experience at the beginning of it, and they became experts during the class, I was able to see where they made this transition. And the transition was not gradual. It was not based on experience. It was based on concepts. So a student who grasped this in the first week or the second week, the sixth week or the seventh week, they all immediately started doing better work as soon as they got that. And from that point on, they never fell back and they never did inadequate work again. At that point, they were making professionally competent work. And it literally was an overnight event, which I literally witnessed overnight in a couple of cases. Um, which means to me that when I look at expertise research, and that research tells us that you need lots of practice, you need lots of time, this is based on memory, this is based on pattern matching, at least in this field it's not the case. At least in this field I have seen it is not true. What patterns are you matching when the first pattern you make makes you an expert? What long-term memory is of use when you are an expert as soon as you understand a threshold concept and you have no memory of having done this before? It's just not happening. So in a chess expert study of expertise by Chase and Simon or Larkin, or any of these other people from the 1970s or 80s, you know, they're dealing with a specific field, with a specific discipline that is going to have um, characteristics that may make it seem as if 
expertise requires the things that their chess masters went through, okay? But I'm seeing an exception to that here, an exception that may have ramifications for other fields as well. What if, for instance, those chess experts are experts after 20 years practice only because they needed to fully explore the problem space in order to bump into the couple of nodes that needed to be connected correctly? Could they have become experts much more quickly, just as, for instance, we have our prodigies like Mozart composing wonderful things when he's four years old, by just going directly to those important points, okay? Now, I think that that's about all I wanted to say anyway. So, yeah, let's just say we're done. How's that? Okay.